So since last fall, uh, Dale has led us in a series of sermons about our covenant relationship with God. And today that series comes to an end with the culmination of that relationship in the new heaven and the new earth. That's a biblical phrase that is first appearing in the passage I read from Isaiah the prophet when we began worship this morning. It appears again in 2 Peter and in the text, a long text from the Revelation to John, which Carlene is going to read for us in just a minute. Years back, a time CNN poll revealed that 82% of Americans believe in an afterlife. I'm surprised. I don't think it's today's poll because I'm not sure 82% of Americans have anything in common today. But a little while ago, we did. And the question is, you know, what's the afterlife like? So a Sunday school teacher was quizzing her class and asked them, where is God's home? And one of her little students raised his hand and said, he lives in the bathroom at my house. And the teacher said, wow, I, can you explain? And so he said, sure. Every morning, my daddy stands outside the bathroom door and says, my Lord, are you still in there? <laughs> if someone asked you, uh, what do you believe about the afterlife? I wonder how you would explain the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Well, that is the subject of our reading today from the Revelation to John. John is unique in the New Testament. It's what we would call apocalyptic literature. It's filled with symbolism, just filled to overflowing. So we might want, for example, sort of an engineering concrete blueprint of what the afterlife is like. And if that's what we want, we're going to be disappointed. That's not what we get. What we get is a whole series of images, metaphors about the afterlife. So we may hope for sort of Norman Rockwell clarity, simplicity. What we get is more like Salvador Dali, you know, uh, just an image. So we don't get a definitive blueprint of the new heaven and new earth, but a series of symbols. And so as Carlene reads, and by the way, her text is long, and just to make it clear to you all, if you want to follow along, this is the Revelation to John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, and then starting again at verse 22 of that same chapter and read through chapter 22, verse 5. It's a marathon reading. Carlene, are you ready? Okay, excellent. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. And for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. That was awesome. Wow. Okay, let's unpack (laughs) at least some of what Carlene just read for us. The text says the first earth had passed away. What does this mean? Many Christians understand scripture to teach that before Christ returns, the earth as we now know it must first be destroyed. And I would substitute for destruction uh, another word, transformed rather than destroyed. And here's my thinking. As we heard from Isaiah 65 in our call to worship, the earth in that vision is not destroyed, but it's transformed by God who ushers in an age of peace, which extends even to the animal kingdom. And then in Romans chapter 8, Paul's principal theological letter, he speaks about the transformation at the end of time of both human beings and of all creation freeing creation from its uh, captivity to decay, just as people are freed from our captivity to sin and death and evil. And Jesus himself, in fact, spoke of the renewal, literally the new birth of all things in Matthew's gospel. So according at least to those texts, instead of jettisoning, destroying, eliminating planet Earth, God does something more like recycling and transforming 
it instead. And the model for that understanding is the resurrection of Jesus himself, who didn't leave his old body behind in the tomb and receive a new one. Instead, his body, dead and buried, was raised to new life and, of course, transformed. Like his old body, as you know, his, his new resurrection body still had the wounds from crucifixion, which he showed the eleven. And at the same time, Jesus' resurrection body was also distinctly different. He could materialize, dematerialize, pass through walls. They, they were no barrier to the risen Christ in his new resurrection body. Now, as we explore the vision that Carlene just read for us, Christ provided John in the Revelation. Let's notice first what's missing. What's not in the new Jerusalem or the new earth? John tells us the sea was no more. How many of you like to sail or swim or simply enjoy the ocean? Okay, most of you. We're coastal Californians. We live in this paradise where people pay big money to come from all over the world to be here in coastal California. So this seems sort of insulting. The sea was no more. But think about the Hebrew mindset. Hebrews were not great seafarers. They didn't have a proper port, in fact, until basically during the lifetime of Jesus, uh, the port of Caesarea was built. Even though they had a coast, they weren't a big seafaring nation like the Phoenicians to their north. And when you look at the Hebrew Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, there is pre-existent waters. God's Spirit hovered over the waters. And friends, those waters are a symbol of chaos, out of which the Creator brought order and good. And in, in the Revelation of John, a little bit earlier, there are a couple evil figures. The first is called the beast from the sea. It's the Antichrist, and there's no accident that he emerges from the sea because the sea is a symbol of evil and chaos frequently. So you get what's going on. Evil and chaos will be eliminated. Also missing from the new earth are tears, death, mourning, crying, and pain. These realities which steal the joy and meaning and fulfillment of life are all absent from the new earth, from the new Jerusalem. Absent as well are certain kinds of people. And perhaps as you heard that list, you felt, Ugh, maybe, maybe we're all indicted. The cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. In the words of my mentor, Earl Palmer, this part of the vision reminds us that repentance and faith are necessary to enter into this fellowship with the one who is the Alpha and the Omega. This list shows by negative contrast what in the positive sense is the will of God. Not fearfulness or cowardice, but faith. Not distortion, but truth. Not murder, but life. Not sexual chaos, but wholeness. Not mysticism, but relationship. Not idols, but encounter with the living God. Not deception, but the open face of trust. Now notice that the New Jerusalem will also be missing the most prominent and important feature of the old Jerusalem, the temple, the home of God, God's dwelling. John reports, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
God and the Lamb are mentioned together numerous times in this passage, and it sounds like they even share a single throne, which is symbolic for affirming the full deity of the pre-existent Christ. Nor will there be need for sun or moon to provide illumination, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. God's presence in the city banishes the darkness with all of its attendant anxieties. Friends, even in the best of days, don't you somehow have anxieties that you bring with you, you carry with you in your life? You probably carried some of your anxieties with you here today. No need for anxiety in the new Jerusalem, in the new earth. And the fact that God and the Lamb are the source of light reminds us of Jesus' claim in John's gospel, which is going to be the focus of this new sermon series in the new year, where Jesus claims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that's what's missing in the new Jerusalem. But what's present there? Speaking in positive terms about what the vision includes It tells us the new heaven and new earth, the descent of the new Jerusalem, is simply, basically, most essentially about being with God, enjoying the presence of God and the Lamb. Whatever else the afterlife is like for the faithful, it means being in close communion with God. Relationship language, which is the language of covenant, permeates this entire passage. A heavenly voice proclaims, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. Friends, that's the essence of the hope of covenant relationship. Now, among the most intimate of all human relationships is marriage. And when John sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, how does it appear? as a bride adorned for her husband. In John's vision, the church is presented to Christ as his bride. Now, Jesus in the Gospels teaches that in marriage, mysteriously, two people become one. And in the New Jerusalem, what is being said is that we all will have the opportunity to experience that sort of oneness with God in Christ. And as you know, while the great figure of Moses the great liberator of the Hebrew people, although he interacted with God in a very intimate way, was never allowed to see the face of God. Yahweh warned Moses, you cannot see my face and live. And yet here in this vision, we are promised God's people will see God's face. Seeing God means being near God, knowing God and rejoicing in God all at the same time. So that's number one. Whatever else the afterlife means, it means being in close fellowship, in close relationship, intimate relationship with God, our creator and redeemer. And second, in addition to being with God, the second key ingredient in the New Jerusalem is the joyful reunion of the faithful from all times and places. Notice that the 12 gates, I'm not sure... Carlene read that part, but uh, they're inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes. The 12 foundations of the city are inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles. So the people of God are part of that vision of the new Jerusalem, actually are center stage in that vision. 
And in John's vision, friends, overall, grace remains central. What we do matters. Our behavior has consequences. And yet we do not earn entrance into the new Jerusalem, which comes rather as an undeserved gift. As Carlene read to us, God promises to the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. The bottom line existential question for all of us and for every reader is, well, how does one gain entrance into the new Jerusalem? Everyone is invited. I think that's the symbolic meaning of the fact that the 12 gates to the new Jerusalem never close. They're wide open all the time. On the other hand, as you heard from the reading, there is one key qualification, one prerequisite to gain entrance. Our names must be written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, we can't write it ourselves, but we can confirm that our names are written there in simple ways by admitting our need for God's forgiveness, by faith embracing Jesus' suffering and death as the means of that forgiveness, that pardon, and then seeking to follow Christ the Lamb as our grateful response to God's love and grace for us in Christ. A woman was diagnosed with a terminal illness given just a few months to live, and as she was getting things in order, she contacted her pastor to speak with him in advance about planning her memorial service. And as the pastor got up to leave after a pretty lengthy visit, the woman remembered something very important. She said, there's one more thing. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. Really, responded her pastor, I I don't understand. And she explained, well, look, in all my years of attending church dinners and church potlucks of all kinds, when they're clearing the dishes away from the main course, someone always leans over and says, keep your fork. It was my favorite part, she said, because I always knew that something even better was coming like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie, something sweet and delicious. So I want people to see me in that casket with a fork in my right hand, and I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? And then I want you to tell them, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. Friends, in his revelation, John confirms that indeed the best is yet to come that our covenant relationship with God and Christ leads to the opportunity to see the face of God, to be in the presence of God and the Lamb for all eternity, to experience joyful reunion with the faithful of all ages. We have a number of children here with us. Have any of you ever read or been read by your parents um, the Chronicles of Narnia, the C.S. Lewis books about the land of Narnia? Okay, I see a, a couple hands, okay. How about adults? How many of you have ever been exposed to... Okay, great, all right, excellent. So at the end of that series of seven books, in the last volume entitled The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis gives this teaser about the new heaven and the new earth. This is what he writes. The things that began to happen after that, were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. 
All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. we're about to sing you may not recognize in fact i don't remember ever singing this hymn before but it's directly related to what kent's just preached on the looking for the second coming and the resolution and the resolution of all things so while the while the lyrics are unfamiliar the tune we chose a different tune that you do know so the tune will be familiar but we discovered something as we tried to sing it at 9 o'clock, the refrains that happen in here, or the repeats, I should say. So consider each paragraph as a stanza. In the first stanza, there's three hallelujahs. We'll only sing two of them. So, And that same thing happens in the next stanza, the three shamed and grieving, shamed and grieving, only two times. And then come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, only two times, not three times. So just... Then, then if you do that, you might still get mixed up in that second stanza, but just follow along and John will lead us. right, you did really well. See what I mean about that middle one? I'm going to lead us in prayer, and in this particular prayer, I'm going to suggest five areas that we can offer prayers for. Um, And so what I'll do is I'll just suggest 
that area and then pause and leave silence for you to fill in who it is or what it is you specifically want to pray for related to that. So I'm going to talk first about faith and then health, relationships, people uh, of limited resources, and then finally our world. So let us pray together. Lord, we turn to you as a community and both individually and personally to ask how you might want to grow our faith in this coming year. What new understanding might, we, might you seek us to have? What release of anxieties that we carry? Or what risk-taking or acts outside of our comfort zones you might be asking of us? Hear us as we pray. We bring to you, Lord, the health concerns, perhaps for ourselves or for others, the needs that we ask you to meet. We present to you our relationships with family members, with friends, co-workers, classmates, or neighbors, people for whom we either offer prayer or ask you to grow our ability to grow in relationship with them. There are people, Lord, we may not know by name, but we see their faces or encounter them with some regularity. People who have limited resources and as a result may have become homeless, may be at risk of some kind, may be hurting and live in fear. Lord, we ask that you would help meet their needs. And Lord, it seems like news of our world is never good news. It feels like we live in a world of crisis. So whether it's creation care and climate maintenance, whether our prayers need to be offered for those who lack justice or peace, or whether we need to see in places a decrease of the use of force and more of an increase of mutual respect and concern and love. 
whatever part of the world or people group we think of now, Lord, we present to you. Lord, we pray to you not as a last resort, but as a discipline and a way of understanding that you are sovereign and good. And there's, we're the ones who have limited abilities to affect change in each of these areas. So we commit them to you even as we commit ourselves to living out the prayer Jesus taught us to pray when he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we might be made rich in him. So out of that sense of, of sustaining presence and power and goods, we're able to present an offering of ourselves and of our resources to God. Would the ushers please come?
pray. Lord, be in our minds and in our thinking, be in our hearts and in our sharing, and be in our hands and in our serving, that all we might say and all we might do would bring you glory, for you are worthy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I failed to mention, if you missed um, the newsletter uh, last week, then there's copies available at the Connect Center, along with the poinsettia list. It didn't make it into last Sunday's bulletin, but it was Christmas Eve. And if you didn't come Christmas Eve and wanted, and particularly if you contributed to this, we wanted you to pick up a copy. So those are available at the Connect Center. Uh, now Kent's got a special request for our closing song. Hey, Dale, I think the word clap is found in the book of Psalms. Okay, good. I was hoping so. Uh, so we don't usually, Presbyterians are, we're not very um, expressive sometimes as we worship. And so, but here's an excuse to clap, but let me suggest how we clap. And it's on the off beat, okay? So, and, we, and I'm only talking about clapping on the refrain of this well-known spiritual belief. Those who, those who wrote this were clapping. Okay, so just the refrain, and I'll start you off, but during the verses, we don't want to clap. So here's your chance to clap and be biblical.
Friends, you go nowhere by accident. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has a purpose in you being there. Christ, who indwells you through his spirit, has something he wants to do uniquely through you. Believe it and go in God's power and love. And Mandy's here as part of the prayer team. Uh, If you would like somebody to pray and talk with after worship, she's available. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus the Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and those you love now and in the life everlasting. And we say together, amen.